0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favourite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts.
1: Granta bought the UK rights to the book, um, and the editor there, Ann Meadows, sent it to people and got this unbelievable blurb from Zadie Smith just last week and Yay. Miranda July instagrammed about it and then Roxane Gay tweeted about oh, it. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, so it felt like yeah, we kind of set it up and the, and then Publishers Weekly gave it a Starbucks review and then Kirkus so then things really started to happen.
0: I'm Anna Maria Alessi and I'm here today to talk about Whatever Happened to Interracial Love: Stories by Kathleen Collins. These stories have been described by Kirkus Reviews as astonishing and essential, a gem. Kirkus goes on to say that the collection features prose so precise and hypnotic that no amount of rereading it feels like enough. She was a very
1: vibrant person. She was one of these people, you just don't meet very many people. She was extremely unusual and very strong and funny and, as I said in my Vogue piece, I think often quite depressed.
0: Kathleen Collins was a pioneer African-American playwright, a filmmaker, a civil rights activist, film editor, and educator. Her groundbreaking film, Losing Ground, is one of the first feature films made by a black woman in America and is an extremely rare narrative portrayal of a black female intellectual. Collins died in 1988 at the age of 46. Joining me today is the author's daughter, Nina Larez Collins. Welcome, Nina.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: So, I want to ask you two questions to start. I want to ask you to please tell me about yourself, and then tell me a little bit about your mother, the author, Kathleen Collins.
1: So I'm a former literary agent who worked in publishing for about 18 years, and then I um, got a master's in something called narrative medicine, which is the study of how we talk about death and dying, which I did because I've been working also for about eight years on a memoir about my mother, who died when I was, um, I just turned 19, of breast cancer. And she was a filmmaker and a playwright um, and an academic. She taught film at City College Uptown, and um, my brother and I were raised by her alone in um, a house up in Rockland County in Pyrmont. And um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 11 and kept it a secret. So she had three recurrences before she died, but I didn't know she was sick until two weeks before she died when um, she called me home from Europe.
0: You've spoken a lot about your mother in the past, but one of the phrases that stuck with me was you had this image of her as as one very glamorous and one very accomplished, but also one who was quote always in her own head. Mm-hmm. That your experience as as a young person being raised by her was complicated by the fact that there was there was just a lot of other stuff going on with her, so maybe it's more than asking you about your mother. Is sort of asking you a little bit about that relationship with your mother that you had prior to what we're about to talk about next, which is all of the you know effort and discovery of her writing and everything that you're doing to support, you know, getting her artistic vision out
1: into the world. Sure. Yeah. Um, she was a very vibrant person. She was uh, one of these people. You just don't meet p- very many people. She was extremely unusual and very strong and funny, and as I said in my Vogue piece, I think often quite depressed. Um, her mother had died when she was an infant, and I think she really did have this creative vision that she was constantly kind of working toward and trying to uh, achieve. She didn't seem, as a child anyway, she didn't seem ever like someone who really had any doubt. Um, <laughs> But she was super in her own head. I mean, she was always in her room with the door closed writing. So we were not allowed to disturb her, I think, until usually 12 or 1 o'clock during the day. She was always typing. And, um, and you know, she was on the phone and working on projects. And there were people in and out of the house, students and other artists. And she was a good mother. I mean, I, I loved her very much and felt loved by her. But she was um, very consumed with her own stuff.
0: And she you describe her as sort of always writing something, whether it was plays, screenplays, short stories, grants, proposals, and you strike a, a similar level of output. I mean, it, it sounds like what you've done at a very early age in terms of Going to school you know, going overseas, what, were you nineteen when
1: you first went overseas? Yeah, no, I was fifteen. So she gave me an incredible amount of independence. I think I think for good and bad. She very much relied on me, you know, as we saw more clearly when she died and she expected me to take care of my brother with no warning. She really treated me very early on like an adult. So when I was fifteen I went to Europe by myself, for a couple summers, and then I went back to study abroad because I had fallen in love with this Viennese guy when I was like eighteen. So I, and I went to college early. I went to Barnard when I was sixteen. So it was all it was all a little bit early. Um, so I went to spend a year spend a year abroad before she, the year before she died. Um, and yes, I think in terms of like massive amounts of output, I think one of the best things about being raised by her, being raised by a mother who is so extraordinarily capable and confident is that uh, and she loved change she was very open to uh, things being different and there were no rules in a lot of mm. ways and I think that was great I think you know Barnard probably also helped but I think you know I have a similar feeling that you know you're fearless she, yeah it seemed
0: like she modeled fearlessness yeah and she taught you that that was something you could be
1: and that it was a good thing to be. I think that's right. And I think in the same way, though, as I, I talk about in my Vogue piece, you know, on the one hand, she was fierce. On the other hand, you know, I have all these letters from her where she admits, I mean, of course, we all have weaknesses, right? So a lot of people would describe me as fearless. And of course, I have fear. Right, right, right. right. We all, you exactly. Know, we're all both. But um,
0: well, there is a there is a particular vulnerability that you mention in the Vogue piece, which we've recorded, and I highly um, encourage people to listen to to Nina's um, narr- narration of that of that piece. You talk about what she tells you in one of these letters um, while you were uh, overseas and she was homesick about how she responded to being a mother, and if you could
1: the pun- she- the. The line
0: is basically that it was all the love that she could that she could handle. But tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, in those last kind of eight months before she died, so I was living in Vienna, did not know she was sick. Um, I was studying there and living with a boyfriend, and she was at home, newly remarried. And we had this really amazing, um, you know, eight months of letters. She wrote to me constantly. And they were bubbly and funny and chatty. Um, But they were also full of, you know, what I later realized were her own kind of looking back on what she had done right and what she had done wrong. So there are are passages where she talks about um, being unable to really love us enough when we were small, that she was so consumed with her own pain or drama or just trying to manage um, that there were limitations. And I think she was also referring to her own sadness from her own childhood and her mother's death like we all do. She had a lot of pain from her own childhood. Yeah. And then I think with her, her relationship with my father was very, very difficult. And she basically said in these letters to me at the end of her life, I realized that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't always what you needed, which, you know, probably all of us will say to our children exactly. one day or would say. So what do you know about her efforts to,
0: um, to be published, to get the movies made, to, to 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 basically accomplish the goals her artistic goals while while she was alive.
1: Well, as a child, my my sense, at least when in my younger years, was that where she had the most success was as a playwright. And okay. people have asked me um, what I hope to happen next after this book publication. Yeah. And I have no idea what will happen next, but one of my fantasies, there are two plays that are really exceptional. One is called The Brothers, and one is called In the Midnight Hour. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, so kind of under the age of 10 or 12, those plays were produced a number of times at um, Julia Miles' The Women's Project sure. uptown. Um, there was another play which was originally called a Portrait of Catherine and then called Almost Music, which was a musical that was workshopped at the Public Theater with Joe Papp, which I love and I have the score of on my iPhone. Um, so wow. those are the things she did. when I was. The stories that are now being published were actually written when I was very, very small. I think some even before I was born. They were written in the late 60s, early 70s. And she did try to get them published on one original draft of a story. There's the name of an old um, literary agent from William Morris, who I believe is dead now, a woman. So at some point, she was represented by someone. And there's also a draft of a contract with Raritan Press there was at some point a possible book deal with the New Jersey Press that never came to fruition and I don't know the details of that but I I have all these random there's also a great there's a rejection letter that I love from Alice Walker at Ms. Magazine no yes it's so great it's in 1976 and I sent it to Rebecca Walker actually because it's just so fun to have it's the nicest it's one of these lovely rejection letters you know we've been sitting on these stories for months and they're so interesting but it's not going to work and um, so she did try to get her stories published and then I think my sense is she kind of gave up on that and she moved into playwriting and then she eventually got up the courage to make a movie. So she did have quite a bit of success for a woman yeah. particularly at that period with her plays and then made The Cruise Brothers and Miss Malloy which is a small film. It's, an, it's a 50-minute film. It wasn't written by her. It was an adaptation of a story by a friend of hers um, named Henry Roth. Not the famous Henry Roth but a different one. Darn that poor guy. And... Um, <laughs> And then I think the Cruz Brothers showed in some film festivals, it premiered locally in Rockland County in some little, you know, I don't know, some little venue. Um, And I think that that gave her the courage to write and direct Losing Ground. Um, And... The problem is, I think, the problem of her efforts to show those, those works and her failure at the time was probably a result of the time and the fact yeah. that she was a black woman, but it yeah. was also probably complicated by the fact that she was sick. She mm-hmm. got sick for the first time at the end of the Cruz brothers and really kept it a secret, but... It must have been a really big deal. She had a lumpectomy. She was, you know, yeah. she had breast cancer, and I was eleven. And and literally, she made those two films. The Cruise Brothers was made in nineteen eighty when I was eleven, and Losing Ground was made in nineteen eighty two. So, I, I think it must have been a very complicated emotional of, period for of her. Of course,
0: bring us up to date in in your influence in getting the stories um, to echo and and to this publication.
1: So basically, what happened was. Um, Losing Ground, you know, premiered at Lincoln Center and became a really unexpected, wonderful success. And about a year later, I got a call from Bridget Hughes, who's the editor of a public space, the literary journal. And she said that she was working on an issue celebrating forgotten women artists. And she wanted to know if I had any written work by my mother. And I said, yes, I have a whole closet full. And so I sent her a few stories. And a few months later, she published Interiors, which was one of the first stories in the collection. And when that happened, knowing publishing, you know, I was an agent and a scout for many years. I thought... If I had tried to sell these five years ago, no one would have yep. cared. But now, with the success of Losing Ground and with Bridget taking a story, I should give it a shot. So I called my oldest, one of my dearest friends, Heather Schroeder, who's a literary agent, and said, "Let's send these. Let's send this collection out." And the stories were actually all original, originally typewritten. We didn't have them on a computer, and so you sent hard copies. No. So Heather and I spent a couple oh, of months getting them, them transcribed by people in India and trying to figure out which ones to include and which ones not. Yeah. There were a few that we didn't include, and we kind of together a manuscript and it was one of these things where we felt really excited about it but we also didn't want to spend that much time and energy on it because we didn't know that anyone would really care in fact I regret a little bit now um not thinking a little bit more thoroughly about which should be included and which not because there are Mm. a couple stories that you regret that I regret not including but anyway we put together this and I had read them dozens of times so knew the stories well so we put together a manuscript and sent it out and sold it to Megan Lynch at Echo um And I was thrilled and we sold it for a very small amount of money and I didn't have, you know, any expectations really. And then I, luckily because I know the publishing world so well, um, and feel obviously so connected and passionate to this program, then I set about trying to find someone to write a foreword and to get blurbs. Oh, you did that yourself. So I did all that myself happily, um, um, we wrote to a number of people trying to get the best possible person to do a forward and through an old, you know, I know Faith Child, the literary agent sure. from a, from publishing, but Faith actually happens to have been someone who knew my parents years and years oh, ago. Wow. And Faith said that she would reach out to Elizabeth Alexander, who amazingly agreed to do it. And then, you know, as we all do in publishing with blurbs, I started reaching out to my friends at first. And then after I got a few blurbs from people like Bliss Broyard and Daphne Merkin and Katie Royfe, I started reaching a little further afield and... Um, got Skip Gates to give us a blurb, and then Vivian Gornick, which made me so thrilled. And so I got six or seven, and then after that, it started really taking off on its own. Granta bought the UK rights to the book, um, and the editor there, Anne Meadows, sent it to people and got this unbelievable blurb from Zadie Smith just last week, and Yay. Miranda July Instagrammed about it, and then Roxane Gay tweeted about oh, it. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, so it felt like yeah, we kind of set it up, and uh, and then Publishers Weekly gave it a Starbucks review, and then Kirkus, so then things really started to happen. It is
0: a collection of stories that—I it, it, love the Kirkus review because it is a collection of stories that the minute you finish it, you do want to immediately reread it. and And also, you do want to press it on your friends. You want to say, this is something really extraordinary— that you need to read. I thought the voice was so distinctive and so different than what I read on a day-to-day basis that I thought that that was really remarkable. I wonder if you have, of of the stories that are in the collection, I wonder if you have a favorite.
1: I do. My, f- It's interesting to hear you say that also. It's just so nice, because, of course, for me, I can read them over and over and over again because they're my mother, and they're so autobiographical, so I love hearing people's responses to them. Um, my favorite is probably The Uncle, which... Um, is the story of her uncle, who was in fact an Olympian runner, who came home after the, I always think of them as the Hitler Olympics, I guess it was the 33 Olympics, and basically never left his bed again, kind of got depressed. and um, For some reason, that story to me is one of my favorites. But I also love, I love—I mean, I love exteriors and interiors. It's about my parents and mm-hmm. their breakup, and I find it, I think the way it's written is really unusual. Um Mine is The Happy Family.
0: Oh, really? Oh. Oh, that's so great. I really really, I, You know, I guess it's also what you love is writing, but what you love is relating. I, I often have surrogate families uh-huh. for very specific reasons, and, and the way she describes being that person sort of on the outside and, yeah. and seeing that very happy family in contrast to what you have at home in particular— I, th- I thought it was so
1: You know, wonderful. it's it's really interesting to me that you say that. I've actually never thought of it in this way. I love that story, too, and, and the family as a family, the, the Damons have been in our lives, so the granddaughter of the parents described in that story is still my oldest closest friend. I mean, they're, they're, wow. they're, they're very close family to us, um, but I've never thought of it. We always took in people, too. We had a young man named Asa who lived with us for many years, like an older brother type, and I've had my own experiences at home taking yeah. in you have kids. A very interesting friends, story. <laughs> so the whole idea of of having surrogate families is something that is really a part of our lives and I hadn't thought of it yeah. in relation to that story quite. Yeah, I I love that story. And also the son in that story is the young man in Only Once. Oh wow. So they oh, wow. that family shows up a number of times yeah. in the collection.
0: Yeah. So I'm also interested so you're sort of, you know this sandwich generation, right? you you obviously you have this amazing story about your life with your mother. you're you're getting her work out into the world while simultaneously raising up your children. Um, so sort of knowing what I what little I know about your mother, you know, do you save every report card?
1: <laughs> it's so funny you ask this because I'm moving right now from my country house, and um, I've had to really decide in the last couple of weeks what to do with the trunks I have of my own life. You know, I realized I have every love letter I think anyone's ever sent me, and I have them all neatly organized in manila do envelopes you? and labeled. You've got them, and, okay. And every filofax and address book I've ever had. And okay. So I was really debating just this weekend what to do with all this stuff, um, and I did, for the most part, keep it because... I've had this... I mean, I'm so enormously grateful that I have my mother's stuff. Yeah. I mean, and I revisit it all the time and I'm still working on this memoir. And um, even when you ask me what stories do I like best, I'm sure it will change. So, So every time I go back to a letter or a journal entry... I often see something different in it, um, so I don't want to burden my kids with my stuff. But I am keeping a fair amount of it, and I do keep. They each have what we call in our family their special boxes. So they okay. each have, you know, their own version of the trunk, a kind of a big box full of. You know, art project, you know all the usual stuff. And do keep. they
0: influence what goes in that box, or do you like who has well, they the do. final
1: word? They do. I mean, they're grown, they're bigger now. They're sixteen, eighteen, eighteen, and twenty-two. But over through their childhoods, they would often hand me something and say, "You know, can we put this in the special Please box?" Keep this
0: in the box. Yes, yeah, keep
1: this. <laughs> so they did have a lot of say. in it. now I think they're so consumed with their lives that they probably don't even think yeah, about the special about, box. will
0: come back, right? But they yeah. do have them.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah that's good. Uh, Have there have there been film options for for any of the of
1: the stories in the collection? I do think that the film possibilities are interesting. You know, I've thought about whether someone would ever maybe remake Losing Ground, or with the stories themselves, it's a question of whether you take it. I think as one story because it is really all that character, or you take individual stories and you could. I mean, even just the title story could be you know could be an incredible an incredible film. Absolutely, absolutely. And how is your brother faring? He's good. Actually, it's been very sweet. So my brother Emilio is three years younger than me, so he's, um, I don't know, 44. And he's a lovely, successful guy with a wife and two kids, and he lives in Brooklyn. And he's been really um, so happy that this is all happening. Good. Really happy about the Vogue piece, and I think he's gotten lots of good feedback and is excited about the book and is co-hosting the book party with me. So he's good.
0: And have there been any other family reactions that have surprised you?
1: The actors in Losing Ground and my mother's closest friends who are still alive. You know, there's a core group of us, you know, who I send every email to and are very excited. So I want to ask just
0: a couple more questions. And I'm i am curious about, so you... you you sell the book. You, your editor accepts it, and then there can be varying degrees of involvement as someone who sort of has gathered the stories together. So, what has the publication process been been like? I
1: mean, it's a, it's a, it's been a great experience, in large part because we've been so incredibly lucky. I, you know, I certainly can't complain because who gets recep? You know, who gets Starbucks, PWS, and Kirkuses like this and blurbs? So I'm very excited and. Megan has been great to work with and the publicity team has been great to work with. We're in a good place and I'm excited and, you know, very happy to see what Harper does, what the sales team does.
0: Well, as I mentioned off-air before we sat down, there's tremendous... There's tremendous excitement internally at HarperCollins about it, and its I can say, of course, having read it, it's, it's delightful, and I thank you so much for sitting down to speak with us about Whatever Happened to Interracial Love, stories by Kathleen Collins, published by Echo in December, and uh, I wish you all the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much. For thank that. you. Thanks for listening. We hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, and if you have, that you'll subscribe. To do so, you just go to your podcast app, search for Harper Audio Presents, and click subscribe. That way, you'll never miss a conversation of publisher, plus author, plus microphone.